Jamie Geller is a household name to millions of people. She's the founder and CEO of Kosher Network International, the world's most watched Jewish food network. She's written several very popular kosher cookbooks, and she's the chief media and marketing officer at H Global, a major online hub of Jewish learning. She's also made a journey to Jewish observance that required getting beyond some pretty common myths. As I became a teenager, I often thought Orthodox Judaism was very one-dimensional, antiquated, not relevant, and I had a big issue with like sort of the role of the Jewish woman or what I perceived to be the role of the Jewish woman. And I have to say it's anything but what I thought it was. Jamie Geller joins us just ahead on Saturday to Shabbos. I'm Jeff Cohen, and this is Saturday to Shabbos, Inspiring Jewish Journeys. When I was growing up, Saturday was what I called the day after Friday. But now, among the many changes I've made in becoming observant, eating kosher, moving to a Jewish community, and sending my kids to yeshiva, I now call Saturday Shabbos. On this podcast, I'll present real-life stories of people who've made their own journey to Jewish observance, the obstacles they overcame, and how the journey transformed them. Jamie Geller, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's such a pleasure to be here. We are very excited to have you, and I must tell you that some of our wives, when they heard you were going to be on, said, Jamie Geller's coming! (laughs) So we're very excited to have you. That always makes me feel good. You can never underestimate the power of a compliment. So today we're going to be discussing a little bit about your Jewish journey, and we want to kind of start at the beginning. So I know you were raised in Philadelphia. What was your family's level of observance as you were a child? Um, So I was not uh, born and raised in West Philadelphia, like the song goes, but close to it. I was born in Northeast Philly um, and then raised in the suburbs. And uh, my family was very traditional. I went to a Salman Schechter Day School, Akiba Hebrew Academy, so a really nice traditional upbringing. I went to a school where half of the day we learned religious studies and half of the day secular studies. I was raised with a real, real love for Israel, um, but it was non-denominational. So in terms of practice, that was completely up to you. There were um, no, I think there was one family that was maybe an Orthodox family that happened to go to the school, but other, and they were like so religious, you know? Um, but the rest of us, just a really strong, strong sense of Jewish identity and Jewish pride. So were there some Jewish customs that you did do growing up that were part of the traditions of your family? So like kosher style. Um, So we, when we ate out, we only ate dairy and fish out, not meat. And we were considered amongst also like amongst the religious groups. Like that wasn't very common. Uh, We went to synagogue almost every week. My mother loved synagogue and loved the rabbi's sermon, but we drove there and the parking lot was full, you know, with other cars and <laughs> participated in like the youth groups and uh, Jewish day camp, Camp Ramon, the Poconos. Uh, so very much so. I had a bat mitzvah, of course, marched every year in the Israel Day Parade in Philly. Um, so very, very much so. I knew how to speak Hebrew, well, knew how to pray, uh, you know, from growing up. So that was really, really helpful when I became religious later in life, having a lot of this background. And you said there was this one Orthodox Jewish family. So what was your perspective of Orthodox Judaism as a child? 
It was so funny. You know, I wonder, I believe that it was like, we'll call it a mixed marriage. The husband was Orthodox and the wife was not. And so they sent their kids to this school, but he would come, you know, before every trip of the father and he would check the kosher certifications on all of the food <laughs> that was like brought into the trip. And I remember going to their house and like on Shabbat, you don't watch TV. Like I remember that was like the big thing. Um, and so when I would sleep over on Shabbat, but um, otherwise... I don't know. I it definitely did not have a negative feeling growing up by any means, but I didn't know that I don't know that I had really any exposure. So it was not neither negative nor positive other than, like than this friend of mine there. Well, we thought he was a little bit funny that he checked the certifications. Like we never we didn't buy, you know, any outright not kosher food, you know, growing up. We didn't buy shellfish, lobster, uh, pork, etc., but we never checked the certification on a box. So those little tiny things, but they didn't leave too much of a negative or positive impression either way. Got it. See, I was allergic to seafood, so even though I wasn't raised religious, I never had shellfish, so I had that going for me. Okay, good. Good for you. I do remember, uh, you know, we, we became more traditional as I was growing up. I do remember having some memories of my dad taking us to eat pepperoni pizza or having things like crab's legs dipped in butter. Um, Very young, like random memories here or there or going to the Jewish deli and getting like the baked potato with cheese, but it had a little bit of bacon on top, which I don't know why it was at the Jewish deli, which had a line out the door, by the way, in Philly, but like here and there. And then by the time I was like in first, second, third grade, like we had left all that behind. So when you think about some of the customs and traditions you were experiencing as a child, which ones were you connecting more or less with? I love the Passover Seder. I remember that. And it's so funny now, you know, the statistics that it's like the most celebrated uh, Jewish tradition or holiday in, you know, North America. And I remember like my my grandpa. I would go with my grandparents, my great aunts and uncles. They were all Holocaust survivors. And my aunts and uncle were educators. And they brought so much. They made the Seder fun and interactive for the kids. And we had songs and we had, like, props. And I remember that being, like, a highlight of growing up and how late we could do the Seder. We could do it. We could go past midnight. If we go to one, if we could say every word in the Haggadah. That, those were things that I remember that were very, really near to me and dear to me. Um, definitely the Bar Bat Mitzvah Circuit. That was super fun those years where like between going to a Jewish day school and a Jewish camp, like you could have like double, triple booked bar and bat mitzvahs and like (laughs) moms would shepherd you like around from party to party over the weekends. And I remember that being super duper fun and special growing up. And so was your bat mitzvah closer to how an Orthodox Jew would experience it or a conservative Jew or something in between? Well, the labels are hard because I always say I grew up conservative. Um, My husband grew up in New York and he calls my brand of conservative reform. You know, so I don't know, um, but I, I did read from the Torah growing up. I did at my bat mitzvah have a lace talis, like the talit, and the kippah, the yarmulke, and it was lace, and it was so cute. And um, so I don't know what camp that puts me in, but definitely not orthodox, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Got it. And so now as an adult, as you look back on the education that you had, what what's your perspective on getting to do this half sort of Hebrew and, and Jewish education and half secular studies, what's your perspective on getting that, that mixed balance as a child? Well, 
first of all, I was so thankful. And I remember recently in the last year, we're in Corona, so the last year and a half, I was actually invited to participate in a study through, uh, I think it was Federation, about if they should continue to fund uh, Jewish day schools like in the Northeastern area. Uh, I'm such a proponent of the education just because it gave me such an incredible background, such a leg up. There's so many people that don't know anything. And I feel like I was raised knowing so, so much. And whatever path I decided to take later in life, even though I did decide to become more religious, I wasn't starting from scratch. I was I didn't have to learn the alphabet and learn how to read Hebrew. And a lot of 90%, if not 99% of my peers did not become religious, but they still have very traditional homes and are trying to raise their kids in that same way. And I see that as a, as a huge um, bonus and plus for the Jewish people where many are just not connected at all to their Judaism and to their Jewish identity, don't feel a sense of pride, and don't even know where to begin and don't even know why they should care. So I'm very, very thankful for that background that I have, and I see even how it's been playing out for my friends and my peers, although they didn't choose to become more religious you know, later in life or traditionally observant, um, but the value that that's helping with them passing things on to the next generation. It's amazing that you got that education because as a product of public school, with my kids now in yeshiva, it didn't take more than three days of kindergarten before they were ahead of me in their Hebrew skills, and I'm just playing catch-up ever since. I was just saying, it's so funny, because I went to this type of school, my husband grew up modern Orthodox, um, so uh, obviously he... You know, in practice, it was much more, you know, religious upbringing, but the language, the Hebrew language and spoken Hebrew was not focused on as much as Jewish practice. And so I actually speak a lot better Hebrew than he does. He's, and so <laughs> when we moved to Israel, which we'll talk about later in life, it came into like really, really helped me. So I'm really, really thankful for that. Beautiful. My guest today is Jamie Geller. She is the founder and CEO of Kosher Network International. So now take us into the college years. Where did you go? And what role was Judaism playing during that time period in your life? So I went to NYU, and it was the first time I was out of this Jewish bubble. I told you I went to Jewish day school. I lived in a very Jewish suburb. I went to Jewish day camp. And now, for the first time in my life, like everything around me wasn't Jewish. And it was a huge, huge wake-up call. And now I had to like actively seek out becoming part of the Hillel or whatever was happening on campus. And um, I remember like having to find like services for Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, what that meant and, and how disconnected I felt and how oh, sort of alone and lonely and a fish out of water that experience was for me. Uh, certainly being uh, in that regard, not in general, I was in a very rich social life, but just in terms of my Jewish identity. And having for the first time to actively choose it and seek it out um, was a huge, huge wake-up call. And did you have Jewish friends who were at that same point and you were looking for activities and going to Hillel together? How were you navigating all that? So it's funny, um, a lot of the people that I met were not Jewish. My roommate uh, had never met a Jewish person before me. She was from a place called Lincoln, Rhode Island. I think I remember going on a trip in Camp Ramah, and I think the oldest synagogue in America is like in Rhode Island, but she lived in this, or one of the oldest, um, but she lived in this like, you know, small, small, small town, and they had never, not a Jew there, and she had never met one. So that was super duper interesting. I met people from lots of different ethnicities and backgrounds and cultures. Um, for the first time, Philadelphia at that time did not have a very large 
or not have any Persian, Persian Jewish community. So I met a lot of Persian Jews from Long Island, from Great Neck. And that was like, wow, like, what is this brand of Judaism? Like, and that was like so much fun and so exciting for me to learn about them. Like, we had these totally different upbringings, um, but a lot of them weren't interested. I went on my own. That's what I was saying. My social circle, well, we were like roommates and friends and hanging out and did everything socially together. None of them were really interested in coming with me to the services and to sort of the more Jewish experiences. And so that it was funny to see how different people either rejected and, or like I said, or apathetic, which I think is really the worst, you know, um, to their Judaism and to furthering that sense of Jewish identity, Jewish pride while in college. It's amazing though, that you were seeking this out on your own. You, like you said, you were out of that bubble, but you still felt drawn to find these activities and stay connected to Judaism, even though it sounds like you weren't yet on the, quote, observant pathway. Was that is that accurate? Very much so. I mean, I had grown up with it, so it, it was what I knew, and I certainly was in no way looking to go to college to reject what I knew. I just... You know, it was furthering my studies. I'd never heard of a college like Stern or YU that was or Atlanta, like that are only like Jewish colleges. And so this just was what it was. It was a natural next step and progression uh, for kids from my school. A lot you mentioned you went to UPenn. A lot went to UPenn. The only reason I didn't go there, like so much, so many people from my school went there, is I wanted to get out of Philly and want to experience New York City and the Big Apple. And you know, so um, but I still I I was looking to continue how I was brought up and raised. That that was so much a part of me and had been such instilled in such a strong way that um, I just had wanted to continue that. And you mentioned wanting to experience New York City. So was your first job coming out of college also in the Big Apple? So, yes. Yeah. So one of the reasons why I went to NYU was because I knew I wanted to be involved in journalism. And uh, Syracuse had a great journalism program. I looked at Northwestern also. The reason I chose NYU and I decided to go there early acceptance is because um, I figured it had a lot of internship opportunities that would be help me expedite my career in journalism and so already my senior my freshman year that first summer I started interning at CNN um, for the entertainment news division and I interned for them that summer and it went so great that the following year I stacked my courses I took all my classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays I continued interning for them Monday Wednesday Friday uh, during the year and then full-time in the summer and I did the same thing the following year and I graduated in three years because I was offered a full-time job there and already while I was in college I was doing uh, covering the MTV Music Awards the VH1 Fashion Awards the Oscars the daytime Emmys I was on red carpets backstage behind the scenes interviewing you know celebrities on set all over and that was very much why I chose New York City because of those internships and job opportunities. So how did your family feel about you getting into the entertainment industry in contrast to the way you were raised? They loved it. They were proud of me. It was amazing. Um, and my mom was super duper proud. And she always knew that I had like a desire uh, to be on camera and in front of the camera. And I wanted to be like, you know, Barbara Walters, Diane Sawyer, Oprah Winfrey at the time. Those were all the, like, the people I'd grown up with. I would come home from school. My mom would be watching Oprah, you know, and I very much that was my dream. And they were ha happy for me to pursue it. It's interesting because my father worked for Aaron Spelling for many years. And we had the opportunity to go on the sets of Beverly Hills 90210 and Melrose Place. And my father used to always say, this world is not real. And they're doing take after take to make it look real. But this is not the real world. And maybe think about a different path and a different career where you can be part of what's real. So I'm wondering how you are feeling, uh, given your background, you're seeing behind the scenes of this whole entertainment industry and, and how it contrasts with 
what you're experiencing faith-wise and things you're thinking about from your background. So first of all, that's such an incredible insight. And I think that I eventually found that to be the case. But at least initially, I wasn't getting into Hollywood and TV production. I really got into journalism. And so that felt um, more purposeful, more real. And um, it was a different angle of the business. The fact, though, that I actually ended up interning and then working for the entertainment news division, that's what opened to my eyes to the what you might call fake or not real or just a completely fabricated reality. And um, a lot of actually, and it was just by chance, I happened to know someone who knew someone. If you really want to know that it's so funny, my mother's best friend growing up, Betty's ex-boyfriend Sam, was on his second marriage to Bonnie, whose daughter from the first marriage was Lori, who I met outside the bathroom at Russia Shutter Services when I was in ninth grade. And she said to me, <laughs> oh, you want to work in television? Look me up. I work at CNN. Look me up when you get to New York. So I called her and she was true to her word, you know, and she uh, got me a job at CNN, but she happened to work in the entertainment news division. And I just remember, like, she could have easily worked in breaking news, and maybe I would still be there to this day, but that exposure to the entertainment world and being on set and being at these award shows and interviewing these celebrities and covering celebrity news, then the only thing more crazy, and, um, you know, obviously you spoke about, you know, like Hollywood and the set and being fake and being everything is like a heightened sense of reality. The only thing crazier than that is actually covering celebrities' personal lives and celebrity news and reporting on that. And then it was like, whoa. (laughs) And that really felt like, well, this is like not what my parents raised me to do and to be involved in. And so like when I thought about journalism, it was never in this vein. And that was the kind of the eye opener for me. Wow. My parents were ultimately concerned that I wouldn't marry Jewish if I got exposed to enough people in different industries where Jews weren't necessarily traditionally going to be. So was that coming up at all as you were sort of of age, you might start thinking about dating and marriage and all that stuff? It's like, you know, my personal story, Jeff. Yes. My mom was freaking out, basically. So I'm like on the red carpet. I'm at these award shows. I'm at the party. I'm at the after party. And by the way, this is like all for work. This is like work sanctioned activities. You know, I'm not there party. I'm actually there working, covering the events. And my mother was freaking out. I, you know, part, I think, of the conservative movement at that time and sending me to those schools and those camps was very much like the main goal was, you know, not to intermarry just to marry a nice Jewish boy. And I always say she was so nervous I would meet the wrong guy in the wrong place. And so in addition to her, you're asking like, you know, why did I seek out, you know, Jewish activities and Jewish organizations on campus? It was always her pushing me in the background, reminding me where I came from and what I have to connect to while I'm there. And then very much so she even went like on overdrive once I got into like, you know, my career. And it's like, God forbid, you know, she should have married a nice Jewish boy. So she sent me to these like, um, outreach organizations and events. Um, there was Hineni, Rebetzin, Esther, Young Rice on the Upper West Side at the time. Uh, there was the Jewish Enrichment Center um, that was at the time in Midtown. Now I think it's downtown. And also Ace New York. And sent me where I met um, Stephen uh, Eisenberg, who connected us uh, from his Monday Parsha classes for singles at Ace New York. So you're going to all these classes. Where is the point in time where you go from not just listening and absorbing the information to thinking, I might actually take some steps here on my own journey. 
So it was actually at H New York. It was the Monday Parsha class. And suddenly, you know, I went initially to meet a nice Jewish guy. These were singles or for young professional executives in Manhattan. You got to mingle after, whether there was sushi or whatever it was they were serving. And um, suddenly there was like this weird turning point where I became less interested in the single scene and more interested in like what was actually being shared and said. And I remember crying. And I ran up to Steve Eisenberg and I was crying. I said, I don't know why I'm crying. Like, I'm not sad. Like, what? And he's like, because we touched your neshama. You know, and he spoke about the concept of a pintle, like, this little Jewish neshama, the Jewish soul inside. It's like this candle and like burning. And like, it just was touched and inflamed. And I don't know, I got so emotional over the things he was sharing. They very much wanted to connect the weekly Torah portion to what was going on in our lives and make it relevant. Like this timeless Jewish wisdom, making it relevant to our lives at the time is like single young professionals. And, um, and he said to me, you have to go to Israel. I was like, oh my gosh, it's crazy. What, what, I, I, I went to your class. I'm crying. I like what you're talking about. Like, what's the connection to Israel? And so I ignored that for a while until one day I decided to, you know, make a change. Okay, but at this point, you're still working in entertainment, and then you decide to what, take time off to experience Israel? First, what happened was I was working at CNN, and I was working the longest hours, and I was working 24-7. And I always say, you know, they would go to the bathroom for you if they could. You just need to keep working. You never, ever, ever stop working. So basically, it was just nonstop, 24-7 at CNN. And I remember wanting, I was very inspired by these Jewish classes and courses that I had been. And I ended up going to these Shabbatons, like these weekends, you know, getaways. So I went with gateways to a discovery Shabbaton. And where they, you know, prove God's existence. And I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. I know I want to become religious. And so I decide to become Shomer Shabbos. I decide I want to take the step and start to become religiously observant. But I work at CNN, and every day the show that I work for is live at 4.30, and I decide I, will, I want to become religious in December when the sun sets at, like, 4. And so, like, <laughs> you know, I couldn't, and I spoke to some rabbis. You know, I worked on the 22nd floor. Could I finish the show? And then I'll, I'll run down the stairs. I won't take the elevator, all this type of stuff. And so I decided to, at that time, quit my job, and that's when I, I decided to become religious and to go to Israel and to take that next step in my religious journey. And I didn't know what it meant to become religious. And so we'll kind of go there, you know, and that was the experience that he had spoken to me about going to Israel. And then after I experienced this weekend Shabbaton, I thought maybe this is for me. And then when I saw I could no longer keep my job, this current job, given that I wanted to be able to keep Shabbat and I didn't know how to keep Shabbat. So it seemed like, you know, the perfect storm. And at that time I would try to go to Israel, take some time off and see, you know, try this like, orthodox thing on for size and see how it fit. So how long were you in Israel and what was sort of the order of things that you took on as you were making this decision to become observant? So I, you know, I got there and I dressed the part right away. You know, I put on skirts and um, wore modest clothing and I started going to classes. I went to Neve Yerushalayim, you know, for girls and I, um, I'm there for about three weeks and I get a phone call. And I get a call from a woman, Naomi, and she says to me, you know, we, I met her recently at a premiere, like literally like a few weeks ago. Like I just met her. We'd exchanged cards. And I told her like I was kind of looking for a change in my career. I didn't tell her it was like a, Jew, a Jewish or a religious thing. It was just much more like I was just kind of searching and wanted something different. I knew that I didn't want to keep up this pace. So she calls me and she says, you know, could you be on the set of Sopranos on Monday? So I'm like, 
sure. I could be on the set of Sopranos on Monday. She was a producer at HBO. They were looking for more freelance producers. She knew that I had wanted a change. We had met at, when I was at CNN covering a premiere of an HBO show uh, called Oz at the time. And she was there for HBO. And we kind of had hit it off. And she didn't know she's calling me in Israel. So I figured I never wanted to leave my career. I just couldn't keep my job, which was this live show, every day at 4.30 while deciding to observe the Sabbath. And so I figured that now I can have my cake and eat it too. I can go back to New York. I can do all of my learning there. I kind of had gotten like a little kickstart in Israel. And I could work still in television, but without having to work for live TV. And if I was going in already as a observant Jew who, you know, kept Shabbat and I told her that, then I was able to sort of work my schedule because it was no longer live television around Shabbos. And that's how I began at HBO. So that must have made a huge difference that you're going in with the understanding from the beginning that you're living an observant life and there's certain things you're not going to be able to do as opposed to when you were at CNN and you were going through a transition, but that wasn't the old Jamie that they knew. That is so intuitive and so correct. It is so challenging to make a major life change and and uh, at a time where people know the old you or you were someone different yesterday or five minutes ago. And what do you mean? You know, like, who are you? Here I came in, it was kind of a chance to sort of restart my identity and introduce myself in this way. So I introduced myself as someone who observes Shabbat. I introduced myself to someone who dresses a certain way. And I also decided to keep Sherman Nikia, where I actually did not shake hands or um, or touch men, you know, people of the opposite sex. And so, um, and they would like, they loved it. They were literally like, you can't shake your hand, you can't shake your hand, she's religious. And I, they ordered kosher food for me wherever I was on set. Um, sometimes if uh, we had to fly, I, Angels in America was a, a miniseries at the time, and I had to go interview Emma Thompson, who was an English actress, um, out in England, and everyone was flying back on Friday, but I stayed an extra night, and I flew back, you know, after Shabbat. And... Um, it was just so, you know, when I made fun, I'm thinking now, not made fun of or thought it was odd that, you know, that religious father was checking the kosher certification of my, you know, one Orthodox friend in school growing up. They were always like, is this water kosher? Can you eat it? Where can we order food from you? Which restaurant is kosher? And it was really, really amazing. And Fridays, they would say like, starting at 12 o'clock, they'd be like, do you have to go yet? Like, you know, do you have to go? Like as if I would turn into a pumpkin, you know, if I stayed too late, they were always very much taking care of me. And it was very different to come in, um, having introduced myself in that manner than having to change somewhere where somebody and everyone knew me a different way. That experience is so interesting because I think about times in my life where I'm afraid to tell people in business or when I'm working on a deal about my observant lifestyle and you get nervous about how it might affect the relationship. But then you find out if you're just honest about it, the people are often like bending over backwards and being so accommodating once they understand what you do and they respect that you stand for something. Very much so. And the majority of my colleagues were not Jewish at all, and they could not have been more accommodating. My guest today is Jamie Geller. She is the Chief Media and Marketing Officer at H Global. So, Jamie, I understand your husband comes into the picture somewhere in this journey. So, so bring him into your story. Yeah, so basically, so now I'm at HBO and everything's amazing. I've got my cake. I can eat it too. And 9-11 happens. And I remember going into work that day. And the National Guard, I'm at HBO Studios, that's a 23rd and Park, and the National Guard is like marching down, you know, 23rd Street. And you just keep working. Like, you don't stop. And it was this fast-paced, even though it wasn't live television anymore, like, working was your life, and life was your work, and it was like, 
do you live to work or work to live? This was completely living to work and living for work. And I just felt that I wanted so much more. And so the next obvious step for me was, okay, now get married, start a family. Like when you're single, even as a religious person, obviously minus the 25 hours you have off for Shabbat, I would work to the minute before and I would start working the minute after. And it was like this, I, I got into that same kind of crazy cycle of television and production and media and marketing that I, you know, that I had wanted to get away from when I was at CNN. And so I decided to start meeting matchmakers like all over, wherever I am. If I'm on location in England, I met matchmakers there. I traveled the whole New York, New Jersey area, like meeting different matchmakers. And then I was on set, I was in LA for a conference and I remember, you know, meeting matchmakers there wherever I could and dating and hoping to find that special someone. I dated, I always say over 50 guys, like I was the one date wonder, you know, and then suddenly somebody introduced me to my husband and two weeks later we're engaged and two months later we're married and about five years later we had five kids and now thank God we have six. But I always say quick and kosher is not just the name of my first book, but it's like a metaphor for my entire life. So I'm sure that our listeners are dying to know the early cooking skills that you brought to your marriage. So take us into those those first few months when you're married. None. I was like an embarrassment. I was a disaster on wheels. I used my oven for storage in Manhattan when I was a TV producer. I never turned the thing on. And um, my husband's like, what's for dinner? And I'm like, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> like, what are, like, who are you looking at? <laughs> and um, I always say I didn't know the difference between a spatula and a saucepan. And I, I didn't really care. And luckily, he comes from a long line of great cooks, both his mother, his stepmother, his father, his uncles. They all, like, love cooking, were great cooks. Uh, the whole, like, male side of the Geller family worked in catering for many, many, many years. It was in his blood. To this day, he loves to cook. And he taught me how to cook. It's so interesting when you think about where you are now. There's so many stories where someone as a kid was already super invested in a particular skill, whether it's cooking or a sport. And then when they're an adult, you say, well, I know exactly why they turned out this way. I could see it even when they were seven or eight years old. But that is not your story. No, my mom still can't believe it to this day. And she gets like stressed out. Like her dream was never for me to be a balabusta, right? Like barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen was not the dream of the immigrant. My parents are from Transylvania. They came from Transylvania to Pennsylvania in 1964, and they wanted the American dream for their girls, the best education, um, careers, and so not at all to be like that old school vision of, uh, you know, cooking all day and all night in the kitchen. And so to this day, she can't believe it, and she still says it, and I'm like married almost, you know, I think it's 18 years, and she, she can't get over it, and, um, but... My husband, not only was he such a great teacher, but he had a lot of easy, simple, quick bachelor recipes, you know, like what a single guy would eat. And so he taught me like a hundred, two ingredient recipes. And like that was the whole first book was based on the things I learned from him, stuff that like you need no skill to make. And you just kind of learn on the job. And so that's kind of, the, yeah, the surprising career that blossomed from that. But all of the, the media and the marketing and the producing of the cooking shows and building a brand... That's what I had been trained for. Um, but I always said I could be selling socks. You know, it didn't have to be, you know, selling <laughs> recipes but or spices. But this is, you know, what I just fell into. What would you say now as you think about balancing the, the large family you have and the company that you're running? What is the biggest challenge in balancing it all while living an observant lifestyle? 
Um, I remember speaking to a mentor of mine who's also a religious woman, very accomplished in um, the advertising fields. And uh, she has a number of kids. And she says, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. You just move from putting out fire to putting out fire to putting out fire. That's basically how it goes. Um, the work-life balance seems to be a little bit elusive. It certainly is much more on trend now to, to make that time and space. And so I, like everyone else, am working on it. Always, of course, it's quality over quantity. I'm not there as much as I would love to be there with my kids, but when I am there, the phone is not around. We try to have like full attention on it. And I'm not talking about just Shabbat, obviously, but there have to be times in the week where whether it's dinner time or bedtime or seeing them off to school in the morning, it's like I don't touch the phone. That to me is the biggest sort of secret and what I really strive to continue to improve upon. And then somewhere in this journey, you made the decision to go back to Israel, where I know you're joining me from today. So how did that decision come about for your family? Well, basically, my husband said on our first date that he'd like to live in Israel. And I'm like, well, then go find yourself another girl. Because I love Israel. <laughs> I support Israel. Visit Israel. Maybe we'll be so successful. We'll have a second home in Israel one day. But I'm not living to, you know, moving to Israel. And um, like water on a rock, he worked on me. And I had cold feet a few times. We put the house up for sale. We said bye to all the teachers. Then the next year, we took the sign down. We came back to school, and they're all like, what are you doing here? I thought you were going to Israel. <laughs> so that happened like a few years in a row. And then finally, when my oldest like just turned seven, she was six years old, and we said, if we're going to go, we should try now. When the kids are younger, it will be easier for them to transition. Let's give it a whirl. And now I feel like I'm the spokesperson for like living in Israel. And I say to him all the time, like, what took us so long? You know, and, and I do not, we're nine years here this summer, almost a decade. And um, I love it every single moment of every single day. I do not take it for granted. And um, I did one thing, though, that was a little bit of sneaky. So I always say you can take the girl out of TV, but you can't take the TV producer out of the girl. So I figure if I make a documentary series about my Aliyah called Joy of Aliyah, where people <laughs> follow me, then like the whole world knows I'm here and I can't just like quietly go and quietly come back and take it back. And um, not only did it help give me strength through the process, but obviously it's inspired, you know, many, many others, probably over half a million views on YouTube. It's a 10 part series called Joy of Aliyah. And people stop me to this day uh, and talk about how this like helped them was a turning point for them and inspired them. So I feel like it was such a, a dream and a pleasure that I could do something like that. Wow. So in addition to all the exciting things you're doing in the world of cooking, there's another side to you as the chief media marketing officer at H. So tell us about your involvement there. So I think you can see, maybe I don't stay places too long, but every 10 years I sort of get that itch, like what's my purpose in life? Am I, am I fulfilling my purpose? Am I being challenged creatively? Uh, do I want to keep doing this forever? And so like, you know, it's been over a decade that I'm kind of hanging out in that cooking space and thank God we have over a billion views of our cooking video of the cooking videos that we've produced over 10,000 recipes on jamiegeller.com. I've produced seven cookbooks. I've been on national television for the holidays. Um, the today show, I'm a regular on the today show and so many incredible accomplishments. And it's kind of like now what? And one of the things that I also found is that so many people were inspired in their Jewish journey. And obviously a lot of that Jewish journey begins with cooking, in the context of not only becoming kosher, but in the context of observing Shabbat, keeping the Sabbath, and or observing the Jewish holidays. That's an incredible entree and touch point to Judaism. And 
I didn't know this, but now it's been official. It's just been my gut. But the latest Pew study said that the two last touch points for Jews of no religion, the Jews that define themselves of no religion, are Holocaust studies, Holocaust remembrance specifically, and Jewish food. These are the two things that still connect people to Judaism. When, when they dropped everything else in either life and or never had the connection to begin with, these are their two markers or touch points for Jewish identity. And I felt very much that we were making these incredible connections across all of our platforms. We have over 5 million followers between our website and social media. Now what can we do with these people? And I felt ill-equipped personally to help them on the next stages of their Jewish journey. And I very much wanted to connect with an organization that could help me do that. So Rabbi Berg, the CEO of H, always you know says like you know he found me um, as they very much wanted to double down on the digital uh, strategy and and production and content and videos and social media. But guess what? I found him at the same time, and I very much wanted to take this incredible following and this connection that we've had with people that help them move along in their Jewish journey. So it was a confluence of amazing things that brought us together about nine months ago. And now I'm here at Aish uh, as the Chief Media Marketing Officer, spearheading a rebrand of the organization and in anticipation of what we're calling Aish Vision 2030, which is a goal to get 3 million Jews learning Torah in the next 10 years. Wow, that is an ambitious goal, but that would be amazing <laughs> if you get there. And I have every, every ounce of faith that you're going to get there. I can see it. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Jeff. So I want to take the conversation full circle and just go back to kind of the beginning of where our conversation started. What would you say is your current take on living a observant life versus that perspective you had at the beginning when you talked about knowing just one family that was observant? As I became a teenager and then I went to NYU, I often thought Orthodox Judaism was very one-dimensional, antiquated, not relevant. And also I had a big issue with like sort of the role of the Jewish woman or what I perceived to be the role of the Jewish woman within the Orthodox uh, household and framework. And I have to say it's anything but what I thought it was. Having um, been living this lifestyle now for 21 years maybe, it's going to be 21 years this year, it's anything but. And certainly I was attracted to it and to making this change because I had the experience when I was in New York, of going to religious families and having the Shabbat experience and seeing what that means to be around the table as a family. And I think we've said that, heard that so many times before, do the Jews keep Shabbat or does Shabbat keep the Jews? And I think very much that that is the thing that kept the family unit together and kept Jewish tradition alive um, through all that we have been through. And I was very turned on to Judaism because of that. And yeah, completely different than what I would have thought, expected, or imagined. So as someone who's been on this journey now for over two decades, what advice would you give to someone who's maybe at the very beginning of their journey and is thinking of taking those first baby steps? Baby steps. I think that you just gave the best advice. Slow and steady wins the race, always. Not taking on too much at once. Understanding what you're doing and why. Feeling connected to why you're doing it. Because a uniform is one thing, right? You can wear the clothes you can go through the motions, but to know it and feel it and to make sure that it's everlasting and has real life changes and has the ramifications that you hope that this, these life changes will have, then you have to really understand each thing, why you're doing it, the what, the why, and the how of it, and slowly, slowly. And what are some of the things you're hoping personally for your family, for your kids in terms of their own growth over the next, say, two to three years? What's, what's important to you? What are your priorities? I think 
this is like such probably the biggest challenge of what they call Bale Chuva. People have become religious later in life. It's something that we actively chose and we feel so passionate about it. And then of course kids who were born into it, it's not a choice, right? It's just what we do. And I care so much and so badly want to instill in my children that this is religion is not about being robotic and not just about going through the motions, just as I referenced before, just because that's what we do but loving it and having not only loving all of the traditions and the you know observance, the rituals, but having a real, true, deep, meaningful connection with God. I think that's probably the thing that is so, so, so important. And um, I remember um, a Rebbitzin that I was very close to, Rebbitzin Judy Young, who passed away at a, at a young age, but she was in the five towns, and she had a major role in me becoming religious and helping me, you know, with uh, navigating, getting married, and all, all of that stuff, and raising my young family. She always said she strives for a closeness to God, and to feel his presence, and to be connected to him, and to be able to speak to him, you know, like everything we say, Avinu Shabbat my Father in Heaven, but to really believe and feel that, just like your own flesh and blood Father, loves and only wants the best for you and everything God willing he does is for the good for you to have that connection to have that understanding and I think that relationship with God I think is so essential step one pushing through that with you know faith and strength I think that's what I hope for for myself and for my children Jamie has been so fascinating to hear your journey now before we let you go we like to do something at the end of our interviews called the lightning round and I'm going to ask you five super fast questions okay you don't have to buzz in just give us the first thing that comes to mind, okay? Okay. Question number one, what is your favorite Jewish food? Challah. Can, can I pick a second favorite? Not allowed. For you, you can have two, for sure. Brisket. Question number two, what is your favorite Hebrew or Yiddish word or expression? Nishtahi nishtaher. And for our listeners, can you translate that? It's like not here and not there. How would you use it in a sentence? Um, like, how does this dress look on me? It's like nishtahi nishtaher. Like, it does not doing anything for me. Or um, somebody who doesn't stand for something. Ugh, it's not like nishtahi nishtaher. Like, you need to stand for something. So, I don't know. Kind of like that. <laughs> Number three, what is your favorite site to visit in Israel? Oh, the Western Wall, the Kotel. Number one, numero uno, nonstop, never get tired of it. Number four, what is your favorite Jewish holiday? Passover. And Why? Because of the memories of my uh, growing up, and those are the strongest memories, and I think holidays are always always about imparting traditions and generation to generation. So that's that connection, I love, and I love seeing that cycle of life happening at the Seder every year. Beautiful. And our fifth and final question, what is your favorite mitzvah? Davening, which is praying. The more that I do it, the more I connect to it, the more I see improvements in myself and my relationships. And it also allows me a time and a place to pray for everything and anything that we want to need, which goes back to that connection of really, you know, beseeching and speaking to our Father in Heaven and uh, praying for all that we want in the world. I always tell my kids it's honor your parents. (laughs) Ah, that's a good one. But we want that to be their favorite, right? It can't be our favorite. (laughs) That's true. Jamie, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos and sharing your inspiring Jewish journey. To all of our listeners, be sure to check out jamiegeller.com to view her latest recipes and cooking videos. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It was so much fun. I loved it. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. 
Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.